and listen to him preach it there because uh, I actually remembered to make him record it. And uh, in saying that, I remember to record this morning's right now in this moment. So it is being recorded as well. But he preached 5 through 16. And what we saw in this was some very specific requirements for those who desire to be elders, as well as the ungodly example set forth by the reputation of those that lived in Crete, which was the absence of godliness. Um, Paul given Titus this command and charge to find this certain men that meet these qualifications and then install them as elders. We also see in that there's this idea of the desire in the man's life, right? And so when we look at that, we see these qualifications. But to make it even more clear, Paul's desire in leaving Titus in Crete was so that he would appoint elders in every town and would put everything remained in order. That's what we saw in the very first sermon. So Paul also ended this portion of Scripture last week by transitioning into another role that Paul was calling Titus to do by saying, rebuke them sharply in verse 13. In this, we are um, really starting to see some of the functions of elders. So last week, as we were looking at it, the primary theme was this qualifications of elders. And this morning, what we're going to get into is really the function of elders, but we're even going to go deeper than that. And I think something that's way more important in some ways, but but harder for us to kind of wrap our mind around how this really applies, is that even the function of the church. And what I mean by that is you guys, the church members, the people who make up the body of church. So in this morning's text, we're going to continue into the idea of the responsibilities presented to Titus, while we're also diving into the responsibilities of those who make up the churches within Crete. And in this, we will see the responsibility of Titus and the church members while rightly understanding what their enabling motivation was. So in a moment, you're going to see some points on the screen. The first one is Titus's role, the church's role, as well as the, motive, the enabling motivation. With this, I want us to walk away from the text understanding the responsibility of elders in Redeemer's life, uh, the church structure here. I want us to understand the church members' responsibilities while we focus on and finishing up by looking upon the enabling motivation that we have in Christ, okay? And so as we do that, let's just read it all together. We're going to start in verse 1, chapter 2, and we're going to read all of it. It says this, But as far as you, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men ought to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger women, younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a good model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent 
may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants ought to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They ought to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. God, my prayer now as we approach your word is that it would be made clear to us and through the preaching of your word. God, as I try my best to explain this in a way that would be God-honoring and lifting and glorifying, God, let the words be said, be grounded in your truth. And God, whenever it is not, Father, um, either prevent me from saying it or uh, just allow my heart to um, be aware of that mo- those moments and let the words I say that are mine be clear and the words that are yours be clear. Father, we thank you for Titus. We thank you uh, for Paul writing to him. God, I pray that each of us would have some sort of Paul in our life that would write hard things to us, that would call us to remembrance um, of your goodness and your grace and your mercy while understanding rightly that we have a purpose in this life. We love you and we thank you. In your son's holy name, amen. So this morning, as we look at this text, uh, normally my, my practice is to start in verse 1 and end in verse 15. You can't do this. You can't do this with this set of scripture. Uh, you could, I guess, but it would be a lot of bobbing and weaving and all of those things. Um, and so as we look at this this morning, what we're going to see is three things, and we're going to look at it in certain scriptures. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what those are in just a second. Um, and you may not follow me there. I'm going to let you know when I'm reading, what I'm saying, and all those things. Um, but we're going to be looking at Titus's responsibility. And in that, we're going to be looking at the role of elders, at least in uh, view of Titus chapter 2. There may be other roles that elders function in. Just This is the ones that are in this set of scripture. Um, And by doing that, we're going to be looking at verse 1, then we're going to jump to verses 7 and 8, and then we're going to look at verse 15. All right, and then after that, we're going to be looking at church members' responsibility. Uh, In that, kind of personally, we're going to look at the role of church members according to Titus chapter 2. And we're going to do that by looking at verses 2 through 6 and then 9 through 10. And then we're going to end with this idea... um, and this just important and crucial idea that their their enabling motivation and our enabling motivation, um, and in that what we're going to see is what motivates us and what gives us the power to do everything that we're going to look at on the first two court, two thirds of the sermon is only by what Paul says at the very end of chapter two, and so as we do that. My prayer would be that, one, we would understand the role of elders, but we would understand the role of church members, 
Uh, and then we would trust in Jesus and we would rest in Jesus. And in doing that, as we are trying to uh, just build up Redeemer and build up this body of believers to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, as David will read out loud for us in just a little bit, is that we would look at this and then we would ask some internal questions. Is what is my function here? Is God calling me um, to function as an elder at some point here or maybe somewhere else? If so, I would ask you as I'm preaching through these things that you would ask yourself, am I able to do these things? Or maybe God has already placed you in that role and you're walking through the elder candidacy. Or maybe you're myself and I'm preaching this to myself this week prior. Is do I fulfill these things like I'm called to fulfill them? But also, let's not separate the fact that elders are also church members, which are believers. And so as we look at the responsibility of older men and younger men, we're called to do those things too. And so church members, my question for you to just really ponder on in just a moment as we get there is are you fulfilling these things? And what I want you to understand about these things, and I'll go into this more in just a little bit, this is discipleship. And before we even get there, let's just talk about the elephant in the room. When we look in our congregation, we may see a lot of younger men and younger women, but no older men and no older women. And so that's our that's our. That's the fault of our church right now is that we say in our mission statement that we want to be multi-demographic. Part of that multi-demographic is being uh, generationally diverse, but we're not that yet. And so you may have to go outside of the confounds of Redeemer to find an older man that's able to teach you in this, okay? Or an older woman that can teach you in this. Um, Because you may look at me and think I'm older, but I'm not that much older. And so... Paul, in this, we are quick to think that maybe he's talking about more mature believers rather than older men or older women. But when you get into the qualification, there's this responsibility of teaching younger women to love their husbands and love their children. You get this clear picture that what he's talking about is older people that have been through life. So the reality here is this is around 62 to 65 A.D., And so no believer within this church context would have been saved more than 30 years. But God was certainly sanctifying them before he even would save them and teaching them through life circumstances how to follow him after he saved them. And so there's something to be said about having older men and older women to speak into our lives. And right now, as Redeemer stands, that's not something you can find within this church And my prayer would be, is that something we are able to accomplish in weeks and years to come? But in all reality, it's not there now. So I just want to talk about the elephant in the room before we even get there so I don't spend too much time there. So Titus's responsibilities, and then in that we're going to see the role of elders according to this set of Scripture. He begins in this first verse uh, of chapter 2. He says, But as far as you, as for you... The reason why I, I kind of wanted to talk about Troy's sermon just a little bit is because Paul, like I said, it's not like he magically stopped his thought process when chapter 2 started. He's continuing his thought process from chapter 2. And at the end of chapter 2, he's talking about these heretical teachers in Crete that were causing issues for the church. And so he says, but for you. So call these people out, but for you, you focus on what? To teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
Now, that phrase, sound doctrine, is a loaded phrase that either means a lot or it means nothing, okay? That, that word sound doctrine is something that we could separate on. What is sound doctrine? Is sound doctrine uh, somebody that is more Armenian in their soteriology? Is sound doctrine someone that is Reformed or Calvinistic in their soteriology? Is sound doctrine someone that believes in pre-trib or post-trib? All reality, none of those things have to, anything to do with sound doctrine, Sound doctrine is exactly what Paul is going to expose at the end of this chapter, is that you're saved by faith alone, through Christ alone, through the word of God alone, by and for the glory of God alone. That, that the one who redeems is the one who calls us to himself and then saves us. And then saving us, he is teaching us and sanctifying us to be more like his son. Sound doctrine in this context, he's talking about teaching things that are true. The reality here is the church would have their issues even this early on with the ways they would disagree when it comes to certain theologies. But the reality and the simple thing about it is this. If there's things that we have to believe in for us to be orthodox, that Jesus, um, and this is not an exhaustive list here, but there's one true God in three persons. Jesus was born, born of the virgin. He died on the cross, placed in a tomb, rose again in three days. The reality here, sound doctrine, is that we're saved alone by faith alone. And the people of Crete was teaching something different. This Jewish party was teaching something different. And so Paul, in talking to Titus here, he says, look, you see how they're acting. You see what they're doing. Don't do that, but rather simply teach what is according to sound doctrine. Teach what is right. Teach what is true. He certainly called, told Titus to call them out on it, to correct this, to rebuke them, and all of those wonderful things. But now he's saying, look, now focus on yourself. Focus on what you are to be doing. Focus on what you are to be teaching. And now he's about to give a list of what that is. And a list of the sound doctrine and the sound teaching is that older men would do this, to younger men, and that older women would do this for younger women, and that bond servants would live a certain way, and that in doing all of this, we would rest in Jesus. So what he's saying here is simply, do what is right, teach what is sound doctrine, and what I'm about to expose is sound doctrine. But he's telling Titus here to watch for himself a little bit. Uh, in this last song we sang, um, I love that song. There's some terminologies that we just don't use today. They're biblical terminologies that if you didn't know it was, you wouldn't really know when you sing the song. But he, there's a phrase in the song that says, prone to wonder. The reality is we're all prone to wonder. And so what Paul is doing, he says, but for you, teach what is according with sound doctrine. Certainly Paul had confidence that Titus was going to do that. But he's given him this reminder because we're all prone to wonder. We're all prone to get caught in the weeds and focus on things we shouldn't focus on. So Paul begins in this charge, in this responsibility of Titus, it says, preach and teach what is sound doctrine. Man, it's good. That's what we seek to do from this place here or wherever we may meet in the future that from the behind the word of God that we would be preaching and teaching sound doctrine in the whole counsel of it. The second thing, though, so you want to jump down with me, is 7 through 8. It says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, 
and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech, we see it again, that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing to say about us. Paul, and, and the reason why it breaks up this way, just so you can understand it a little bit, Greek is funny and it's weird to translate, okay? And so I wanted to preach this because Paul is in this text in three places talking directly to Titus. And this is one of them. And in talking directly to Titus, there is an overlap here, right? He's talking about younger men right before this. And now he's talking to Titus directly. And so what he's saying to Titus is be an example for these younger men, okay? And so he's saying live out these truths so that younger men can then live out these truths. But what are those truths? Model of good works. Paul's reminder to Titus is that it is crucial that he would be an example of good works. But in this context, he's talking about being an example for, older, uh, for an older and younger man in the faith. Paul rightly understands that what he is calling Titus to in the church is hinging on the biblical example that Titus provides for the men and the women that he was leading. Listen, this church and no church is dependent on any pastor, any preacher, any elder, or any person that makes up the congregation. The church is built up on Christ alone through the faith uh, through the power of the Spirit alone, by the will of the Father alone. The church is not dependent on one individual. But we've seen so regularly that churches fall apart by the lack of integrity of a pastor that is leading the church. There's a phrase, a saying, whatever you want to call it, I have no idea who to contribute it to, but it's not by me. It's simply that you cannot lead your people where you are not going. Pretty common sense, right? The reality here is that this church, these churches that Paul placed Titus into crate to kind of put back into order, they were never going to be one of integrity if the elder was not the one of integrity. No church will fall into a place where it's supposed to be if the pastor is doing things that they shouldn't do or the pastors are doing things they shouldn't. This is why when you look at chapter 1, the qualifications of an elder is so important. Is because the church will never be what it needs to be if unfaithful men are leading it. It may grow to a number that is large. It may seem to have a good impact in a city. It may be doing a lot of things, but in all reality, it will not be a God-honoring, salvetic-type church that is accomplishing the will of God unless the leadership is doing what they're called to do. Certainly God can do what he wants, so there may be circumstances of true conversion and true discipleship in context where pastors aren't who they need to be. But let's not be that. And that's what Paul is reminding to Titus here. Model good works. Be an example of good works. Be what I'm calling you to tell these people to be. Be an example of these things. It's that, just that plain and that simple. He goes on. He says, in your teaching, show. And he's going in depth here. He says, be a model of good works. And now he says, in your teaching. Now, why this is important is because as he's teaching these things, he's also living these things out. So it says, in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Integrity. Live out what you're preaching. Live out what you are teaching. Paul is telling Titus to live out the realities that he's about to unfold for the people of Crete. Be dignified. 
worthy of respect. Way too often people demand respect but have not earned respect. Paul is saying, in your teaching, show yourself dignified, worthy of the role of elder, worthy of one that should be listened to. And then he says, sound speech, but he goes more in depth, that cannot be condemned. What, it, what is he talking about there? Why would his words be condemned? Well, we're going to see in just a moment, he also says, so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing even to say about us. Okay, So what is he talking about here? Is that he's already called out these false teachers from Crete. And he's condemned them. He's saying some very negative things of them. And so Paul is saying to Titus, in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Be sound in your speech. Why? So that you can't be condemned. So that your teaching can't be condemned. Teach what is right. Teach what is true. And live it out in your own life. No pastor is going to be perfect at this. No elder is going to be perfect at this. Titus certainly was not perfect at it. Paul was not perfect at it. Paul in Romans, in a very confusing verse of Scripture, goes on this rant about how he does what he does not want to do, and he doesn't do what he wants to do. And in that is just is a window into the life of Paul. Paul is also the one that says there was no greater sinner than him. No pastor, no elder is going to live these things out perfectly. But they should seek to. They should seek to live it out the way that God would have them leave it out. And as we're going to see at the very end of the sermon, not dependent on their own power or their own ability or their own intelligence or their own rest or the lack thereof or their own whatever it takes to make them feel accomplished, but in Christ. But he goes on and he says, So that the opponent may be put to shame having nothing even uh, evil to say about us. Two things I want to point out here. The opponent um, is most likely talking about the heretical teachers that were in Crete, the ones that were the, the Jewish party. He's most likely talking about them as someone that is an opponent to the church because most likely because they were adding to salvation, Paul would have not saw that individual as a true uh, converted, regenerate believer. And so he's calling him an opponent here. And he says, look, be sound in your teaching, be sound in your good works, so that the opponent may not be put, so that he may be put to shame. Why? By having nothing evil to say about who? Us. He didn't say you. He says us. Because the reality is all believers are tied together. And in this moment, he's talking about himself, Paul, Titus, Timothy, all these other people in the New Testament you could think of, but even the church as a whole. And I don't think I would have to expand on this much because if I say this, your mind will probably go to somebody. But we can all think of some kind of religious leader, if it be a pastor or a leader of a ministry that did amazing work, that seemingly from the outside looked solid. But... In all reality, the one leading it has brought much shame onto Christ and his church. Think about a, a guy that, um, I mean, I'm not even going to go into details. There's still so many. We can think of large names. We can think of small names. There's so many people that this occur in. And what he's saying here to Titus is, don't let that be you. 
Don't let that be you. The last thing we see, Paul kind of giving a responsibility to Titus here, um, and that we would apply it differently in our context, but it would be very similar in some ways. In verse 15, he says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. I'm going to focus on the with all authority and let no one disregard you. Um, here at Redeemer, our process of establishing elders is simply this, is that the elders see a man that seemingly be qualified, take them through a pre-process, and in doing that, um, would see that they're fit to f- function in that ministry from what they know, their perspective, bring them before the church, say we're going to walk through this elder candidacy process with them. And in walking through this elder, elder candidacy process, is about six months to a year process. And in that, it gives the church enough time to get to know that individual in a way that at the end of their process, the elders, if they give their stamp of approval, the church could then come alongside them and say, we affirm this man. We ordain this man. We trust this man with our souls because an elder is teaching your souls. Okay, big deal, really big deal. The reason why I say that is because elders have authority according to Scripture. His is rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. But the reason why we go through such a process to do that is because this isn't a light role to be taken on. And so in the next part is where I want to kind of spend my time. I just had to take the opportunity to teach that as we were looking at it. He says, declare, exhort, and rebuke. Now, I want to be clear here. He says, declare these things. So what he's talking about is verses 2 through verse 14. So he's being clear here. He says, look, declare these things to these people. Tell them these things. Uh, So he's telling Timothy to teach this stuff to these people. But we do the same thing. We're doing it this morning. We're teaching the same principles to you guys. But we also do it with the rest of Scripture, that we declare it. Um, This means proclaiming the word that Paul was to the church or proclaiming the word to you guys, whatever Scripture it may be, to exhort, to encourage, to build up, to uh, build up the body of believers, to just to encourage them to live out the principles found in the Scripture and to rebuke, which means to correct Paul is calling Titus to declare the word of God, to encourage the believer, and to rebuke the believer when, re- when correction needs to be made. And to do all three of those things with what? Authority. Why? Because God has placed them there and the church has affirmed them. All right. So responsibility and role of elders and Titus in this set of scripture is to preach and teach sound doctrine to be a godly example in both works and teaching, and to declare, exhort, and rebuke with authority. Now, church members' responsibility. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 6, and then we're going to, well, I'm sorry. We're going to be looking at verses 2 and then verse 6, okay? Um, and we're going to start off with older men and younger women, older men and young, younger men. Now, I want to give this preface. When you look at verse 6, it says this, Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. It's almost as if the women get the bad end of this deal, right? You get two verses explaining what a woman should be, and then the younger men only get self-controlled. That's not the case. Because when in verse 6, he says, Likewise. 
Okay, so pretty much the same qualifications minus a few. Um, uh, what Paul is calling the older men to practice and to live out is what he's to be te- there to be teaching to the younger men. Okay, so older men are to be an example of this, and then being an example of this, also being very intentional in teaching this to the younger men. Okay. And so we're going to look at this, and really the lists are the same for the two. We're just going to look how they separate a little bit. He says, older men, verse 2, he says, older um, men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Sober-minded, watching what they're taking in, watching what they're listening to, watching the doctrine that they're, they're taking into their life, watching what they're taking in from the world, what they're taking in from politics, what they're taking in from podcasts, or obviously not in this context, but in ours. Being sober-minded means controlling what your mind is taking in and understanding what you're reading, all of those things. There's a reason why my normal practice is to not put a book on that table back there that I have not personally read. It's because I want to ensure that it's going to cause someone spiritual growth, not spiritual decay. But often there's things in our life that we take in that we shouldn't be taking in. And it doesn't even have to be biblically grounded things. It could be television shows. It could be music. It could be the way we communicate with others. It could be the way others communicate with us. To be dignified. Paul calling the men also to be self-controlled. So often in life, or in the church, what we've done is we've said things are sinful that aren't necessarily sinful. They're only sinful if you take them to an area they're not supposed to be. Uh, An example of that is sex, right? Sex is something that God has designed for the convent confounds of a marriage between a man and a woman. And in that is a, an amazing and beautiful thing that God purposed for good for both parties. But what we've done is we've taken and we've perversed that into something it should not be. And so what it is is now sinful because we're doing it in ways that God did not design for it to be done. Certainly self-control falls into that category for older men. But there's so many areas that we should be self-controlled He goes on to say to be sound in faith, love, steadfastness. That we would be dependent upon Christ, that we would love him and love people, and that we would be uh, steadfast in all that we do. But then in verse 6, it says, Likewise, urge the younger man to be self-controlled. Um, I would say there's a reason why Paul repeats the self-controlled here. Um, he's just sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness to the men. But whenever he writes this and he says, and urge them, he's putting an emphasis on the idea of being self-controlled because young men are not self-controlled. Young men are not committed the way they should be committed. And to everyone in the room, every man in this room is considered a young man. We need older men to encourage us to be self-controlled. In that, to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. 
But in this, and even in the women's, the primary thing we see in all of this isn't a list of things to do right and the things of lists to not do wrong, but rather it's a discipleship. Is that you should have someone pouring into you. There should be an older man in your life that is discipling you and developing you. But in that, you can't ignore that to somebody, you may be considered an older man. Somebody that can walk through, you can walk through life with them and help them function in the way they need to function in whatever setting that they are in currently. So in this, as we're going to get into the women in just a moment, I just want to take a moment and just call the men specifically. Be in a discipleship relationship and be discipling someone. There may be moments where you can't do those simultaneously, but the, certainly that should be in the practice of some sort. That you should be being poured into outside of this gathering in our community groups. You should be poured into in a more personal way. Even if it's just a group of three or four guys, it doesn't have to be a one-on-one thing. It could be a three-on-four or something of that nature. But a very gender-specific thing here. Because when you read through this qualifications for, uh, not qualifications, you read through this responsibility for older men and younger men. And then you look at the older women and the younger women as we're about to look. It differs tremendously. Because men and women are different and men need men to pour into their lives. All right, older women and younger women. Verses 3 through 5 says this. Uh, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, I want to focus on that latter part because I do think it goes into the context of older and younger men. It says, so that the word of God may not be reviled. The reason why you as men live in a godly way isn't because your wives or your children or other people around you deserve it. It's because God's calling you to. And younger men and younger women and older women, the reason why you do these things is not so that you're loved well by your husband or that you love your children well or that you um, live well in the life that you live. You work hard. You do the things you're called to do. Not, not, not because of your great name or the name of your husband or the name of your children. Or so somebody would look at you and say, man, I want to be like her. It's why. So that the word of God will not be reviled. So that God would be glorified in the way that you live. Now, this is not going to be an exhaustive breakdown of what all of these terms mean, but let's look at them. Reverent, living a holy life. I would almost say that you could sum up all of these things in the first word, but to be reverent, not slanderous, meaning not gossipers. Pretty simple. Uh, Not slave to much wine. Um, It's my notes, my grammar mistake here is slave to much wide. Uh, slave to much wine, um, and it's not condoning, um, it's not preventing or pro- provoking any use of alcohol. It's just slave to much wine, pretty much the same principle of being self-controlled here. Um, he goes on to say, love their husbands and children to teach and to train younger women. That's the primary function here for older women. And what I want to be honest and just transparent about is, as I think about the discipleship process for Redeemer, the hardest thing for me to do and figure out is how do we disciple the women well? Because there's a clear calling here for women to do this, right? 
that certainly is done by the preaching of the word and it's done in community groups, all of those things. But I can go and I can meet with all of the guys in this room in some way or another and personally pour into their life where I don't think I can do that with the women. And so how do we accomplish this well as a church? And I think it has to be in a model like this. Maybe it's not that we're older in the sense that he's using here, but those women that's coming alongside women and discipling each other. Um, but anyway, he says, teach and train younger women. That's the responsibility of over, over older women. But let's see what the ways he's telling them to train them to do. He says to love their husbands and their children. Why would Paul tell older women to help younger women love their children and their husbands? It's because love doesn't always happen easily. Sometimes it is difficult, even for women, to love their husbands. Sometimes husbands make it difficult for their wives to love them. Sometimes it's hard for mothers to love their children the way they should or the way they think they should. And it's not out of anything negative about that mother or that woman, but it's by the, the, the result of the fall that we live in a society that bends us towards sin. You have to each day intentionally love, and husbands, the same for you to your wives, but each day you have to intentionally desire and decide to love your husbands and children the way you should. It's the reality here. Paul is calling it out for a reason. And it's not because it didn't exist in the life of the people. It's because it was prevalent in some way or another. To be self-controlled, we've handled that well with the men. It's the same principle. To be self-controlled, though it may look different in different ways. To be pure. I'm going to skip the next one. We'll get to that one last. Uh, second to last, actually. To be kind. Working from home. And submissive to their husbands. That's the two kickers that we always get pushed back against, right? Uh, working from home. Uh, when you read his charge to Timothy, it actually translates managing the home, okay? And I think that's a better translation because if I look in this room, um, one, not many of us work from home, uh, any of us really. There's only a few um, that will actually work at home. And the other thing of it is that I don't think it's a command for women to specifically only work at home. I do think there's some cultural connections there. But even when you look at Proverbs 31 and you look at the responsibility of the woman in Proverbs 31, she certainly did more than just take care of kids and feed her husband. There was a lot of work that went into her life. She would go and she would get water. She would get garments. She would sell them in the market. She worked. The reality here isn't that a woman should be at home, barefoot, pregnant, making a sandwich for her husband or anything like that. The, the simple truth here is that the woman should be one that is functioning well in her home and contributing to it and managing it in the way that they should biblically. The reason why that's important is because there's things that men do well, there's things that women do well, and it's not that one's greater than the other, but God has designed us differently. And so here, managing the house well is a responsibility of the wife or, yeah, but it is also in submission to their own husbands. I'm not, um, I'm not an advocate for some people, and I'm not going to go on a tangent here, but there's some people that say women are submissive to all men, essentially, um, that women shouldn't function in certain roles and things of that such. 
Um, I don't land there, but I do land that biblically uh, and scripturally what we see is that women are called to be submissive to their husbands and allow their husbands to lead spiritually. We often can take and run with that and make it more of an abusive more way of living for the wife. But I want to take that and I want to look at it on both sides. That means men in the room, you are called to live in a way that your wife can easily follow your leadership. Be consistent and show up. Wives, submit to your husbands even when it's not easy. I would take this idea all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and say that the result of the, the need for submission of wife to husband is a result of the fall. And it's actually a side effect of Eve eating the fruit and giving it to her husband. But even in that moment, you see a lack of leadership on the man's part by leading his wife well. Husbands, lead your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as they lead you. The last thing we're going to look at, and I'm going to try to do it fairly quickly, is the last... Um, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. We still got bond servants in 9 through 10. I'm not going to read that verse, but bond servants, um, you know, a lot of times we like to make this a prettier picture than it is. Sometimes when we think of bond servants, we may think of sharecroppers or things of that nature. You may even go back to Levitical law, like we just read this week on how to function as slave owners in uh the Israelites, after they were going to be into the promised land, how they should live and how they would take care of their slave. And then after the seventh year, they would let them go free unless the slave decided to live with them forever. This was a Roman Empire, okay? There's a big possibility here that the bond servants and the slaves that he is writing to were not treated well. Why does Paul not call out this cultural norm do we know that there may have been slave owners in the congregation? I'm not sure why he does it. I don't want to speak with Scripture silent, but I do want to say this, is that regardless of the circumstances, Paul is clear to the role of the bondservant or the slave in the circumstances. The way this would directly apply to our life, and I think, it's, I think we can do that, is by the way we live our lives and the way we work our jobs. Okay? Um, he says, be submissive to their own masters in everything. Uh, obviously, in the everything aspect for us personally in our jobs, I would put a line there and say there's some ways we're not submissive in everything. Okay, but this context certainly he's calling the slaves to be submissive in everything. He says well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, which I had to look up because I'm not that smart. It means stealing or misappropriating, showing good faith to everyone. But why? Why is Paul writing to the slave and saying, live good, do right, don't be argumentative, don't steal from your owner, even if he treats you wrongly, even if he beats you, don't do these things. Why? So that, the, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The reason why the slave was called to live a good life, even if they were not being treated well, was so that the gospel would be made known to their slave owner. This is not a making slavery right. This is making a circumstantial thing right in your life by doing what you're called to do. Certainly there's moments in our life where we find ourselves in situations where we don't think we should be there or don't want to be there. But even in those moments, we're called to do what is right. Why? So that the gospel will be made known. So in that, um, I do want to lead you with one thing. Um, one theologian kind of explains this section of Scripture by saying this, 
Therefore, what Paul asks for is not unique to slave situation, but is a response to those under authority can appropriately be asked to render as part of the duty and responsibility to the one who is in authority. If you're in authority in any position of your life, I want you to have the flip side of that coin and live a good life so that those who fall under your leadership will see Christ in the way you lead. So the third thing and the last thing is their enabling motivation or their enabling or enabling motivation. In verse 11, he begins by saying, for the grace of God has appeared. This is the gospel. Um, and I, I don't want to cut that off. And so what we see in this, what he's getting at, just as we sang this morning, the grace of God has appeared. What is the grace of God? Is that while we were sinners and while we had rebelled and turned against God, a perfect and holy God that has created all things, why we were living in rebellion and we have rejected him, we were his enemies, that the grace of God appeared. How? Through Christ coming and living a perfect and holy life, dying on a cross, being laid in a tomb, conquering sin, death, and the grave, so that those who would believe and trust in Him would be saved. This is for the grace of God, for salvation, for the, the, the moment in which we have been redeemed has appeared to us. Why? Why has the grace appeared? Verse 13 and 14, I'm not going to read it. Actually, I do need to. It says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. I want to focus on that phrase there, a people for his own possession. That grace through Christ Jesus was for a people of his own possession. That God sent his son into the world to die for the world. Why? So that he would save his people. That they would be what would happen with them though. Verse 11. Bring in salvation. Verse 12a. Training to renounce. And 12b. Training to live. See so often we think of the gospel. We think of grace only tying to our salvation, and it certainly does, but it only starts there. Verse 11, he says, bring in salvation. Grace, first and foremost, saves sinners from their sins. But grace of God also trains us to renounce. Look at verse 12a. 12, sorry. I know you don't understand the A part if you're not looking at my notes. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That we would turn away. That after we have come to Christ in salvation, the, God, the grace that God provides for us trains us to denounce all of the things we once lived in, all of the ways we once lived, all of the ways that we previously desired to live that was unglorifying to the Father. The grace of God not only brings us to salvation, but it trains us to not do what we once did. But not only that, but it trains us to live. Grace finally leads and enables us now to live how? Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The reason why that is so important is if we went back and we look at these responsibilities of the elders and the responsibilities or the calling of the church members to, to make disciples, to do it in these certain ways, to treat, teach these people to live godly lives, 
We cannot do that in our own power, in our own might. We cannot live good lives. We were not good people before Christ. We were not good people that chose to do bad things. We were bad people that sometimes would do good things. And after Christ, we are certainly good people in Christ Jesus, but our flesh still comes out. And so therefore, we're still bad people that only do good things. Why? Because God enables us to do the good things. So in this, and I'm rushing it, and I'm so sorry that I'm doing that. But in this, what I want us to see clearly is that we are only able to do the first two-thirds of the sermon. Why? Because Christ has saved us. He is teaching, teaching us to renounce, and he is training us to live. And so as we started off the sermon in, uh, this morning, and as I end with it now, in all of this, I certainly want you to feel convicted over the areas of your life that do not meet those criteria. Certainly, you should see a way that you should grow because we're all sinful individuals. But I don't want you to leave here defeated either. Because when we look at a long list of things to do right and a long list of things to do not to do wrong, it's easy to walk out of here, our heads hung, not thinking we can do these things. What I want to do is I want to end with an encouragement. And that encouragement is simply this. That in Christ, you can be the man that God has called you to be. Or the woman that God has called you to be. You're certainly not going to be perfect at it. But in Christ, he not only saved you, but he's enabling you for good works. Ephesians tells us that the, the workmanship that he created before the foundations of the world. Why? So that we could walk in them. Let us trust and rest in Jesus this morning. I'm going to pray, and Troy's going to come lead us in this last.